Welcome to Call Jeshurun, a podcast from Congregation B'nai Jeshurun, a vibrant and flourishing Reformed Jewish community in Short Hills, New Jersey. Welcome. I am Rabbi Matthew Gewertz. Call Jeshurun is where you can come to engage with teachings of relevant wisdom and music. You will hear from our clergy, staff, and guest speakers who will help bring meaning into a world that so badly needs it. If you would like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at tbj.org. Cantor Jeff Klepper is one of the key figures in American Jewish music. His original songs, such as the universally beloved Shalom Rav, written with Rabbi Daniel Friedlander, are known throughout the Jewish world. He was one of the first cantors to champion congregational singing and to use a guitar in Jewish worship. For his role in creating a contemporary Jewish musical style, he has been hailed as a pioneer, one of a handful of people responsible for literally changing the sound of American synagogue music. His influence is reflected not only in the hundreds of cantors, song leaders, teachers, singers, and musicians who regularly teach and perform his songs, but in the thousands of students, campers, and shul-goers who sing them. I met Jeff as a child in Chappaqua, New York, at Temple Bethel, where he was cantorial intern with Rabbi Chaim Stern. The following is from a conversation I had with Cantor Jeff Klepper on September 1st, 2021. It's great to be talking to you, Cantor Jeff Klepper. How are you? How are you doing in the last 18 months? How are you and your family? Well, thank you, Matt. Thanks for inviting me to this little schmooze fest. Great to see you after many, many years. And um, I'm looking forward to our to our talking. Well, it's been a crazy year, hasn't it? It sure has. I think for everybody, full of challenges. Um, I am happy to say that that I'm pretty good. My family's pretty good. Um, lots of transitions. I have two daughters in their 30s and they're both in grad school or let's just keep it simple <laughs> in grad school or graduating grad school and and moving on with their lives and it's um it's life it's life and life only you know so so i'm so grateful to be here to be alive to be healthy i retired from my cantor position in sharon massachusetts where i was the cantor of Temple Sinai for about 16 years. And that followed the time before that where I was in a synagogue in Evanston, Illinois for 18 years. So I've been doing this canter thing for a long time. And here I am and I get to sleep late and mm -hmm. I get to go to any synagogue I want to oh, great. when I want to. When did you decide to become a canter? I grew up in New York City. We lived in Washington Heights, but I went to synagogue at the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue on West 68th. We did not have a cantor. As a matter of fact, most reform synagogues in the 1950s did not have cantors, certainly not full-time cantors. Some of them had soloists, but most of them had choir directors. Some were Jewish, some were not. In our case, the choir director at Stephen Wise was a very famous composer named A.W. Binder, who's written, well, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of things and 
There's about half a dozen of his compositions still in the repertoire. So I didn't have the role model of the cantor because reform practice really didn't allow for cantors. You had choirs, organists. Um, our friend Judah Cohn, the ethnomusicologist, has written a lot about this, and Mark Kligman as well. And it's a fascinating story. 14, we moved out of New York City, moved up to Albany to a synagogue that did have a cantor. I was raised on folk music. I was raised on Pete Seeger and Oscar Brand and Theodore Bickel. It's just coincidence I named three uh, Jewish singers, except for Pete Seeger. But he's he had not, a he had a great. He said it wasn't Jewish technically, um, but he was a lover of Israel actually, which is important. Yes. yes. In any event, when I got to my new synagogue and heard that cantorial sound, it was strange to my ears. And when I sang from the time I was eight. So being a cantor was the furthest thing from my mind. But I was interested in Judaism, especially from reform youth groups, nifty camps. I was kind of a fired up young baby boomer Jew. And I thought maybe I'll become a rabbi. Well, there was only one problem with becoming a rabbi. You have to graduate college. And I was halfway through Clark University then in 1972, I guess, or 73. And the academic thing was kind of kind of iffy for me. But I felt very strongly Jewish. So to end the story, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who we had been song leaders together and he was becoming a cantor. He, he was a few years older than I was. Who is that? Well, I'll name him. Uh, his name is Bruce Benson and maybe some of the people listening may know him. He's been in Florida for, for quite a number of years now. So he was kind of a role model for me. And he said, Jeff, you got to become a cantor. It's going to be great and you'll get to do all this music because I was a camp song leader. You know what that's about. Yeah. And I just wanted to do that for the rest of my life because yeah. you know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a magic camp is a magical place and the kind of spirit yeah. that we had going. You, it was the exact opposite of what was happening in a synagogue. In a synagogue, you sat down, you folded your hands and you didn't get up. You didn't, God forbid, you should clap your hands. Oh. No, 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 no moving. Just, you know, all rise, all be seated. Nobody sang in synagogues in the 50s and pretty much the first half of the 60s. Well, anyway, I gave it some thought. The first woman cantor, the famous Barbara Ostfeld, did not go to college. Um, my friend Roy Einhorn, who just uh, retired here in yeah. Boston, he did not go to college. So a few of us squeaked in, you know, crack in the, in the, in the door had closed. So you needed a college degree. Yeah. And so I thought, why go back to college to become a rabbi? Because I knew it would take me many, many years when I could just go and become a cantor. I just wanted to play Jewish music. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. That's fantastic. And when you were at Stephen Wise and you were in youth group, did that have a profound effect on you as a, as a young person? Well, 
the the most important influence on me were my parents. Neither of my parents were musicians. My dad passed away quite a number of years ago. My mom, thank God, is still still here with us. But neither of them played an instrument. Neither of them sang. They appreciated music, especially folk music, which is why we had the Pete Seeger. My father especially, not that he came from a strong social justice background, but he was a Democrat with a big, you know, capital D Democrat. And he was very, very active in politics in New York City, in the Democratic Party. And he was one of the founders, kind of synchronicity about the word reform. You know, we are reformed Jews. And my dad was a reformed Democrat. That is not to get into, we're not getting into politics. There was a lot of corruption in politics in the Democratic Party. And so my dad was trying to change that, he and his colleagues. So my dad attended the famous March on Washington, which was just around this time, the end of August 1963. Very, very active in the social justice movement, which then was civil rights to help people whenever he could. So I think that's the the social justice um, imperative. But certainly being at the synagogue where Stephen S. Wise had, you know, spoken truth to power during World War II in terms of the situation of the Jews of Europe. And it, it was very meaningful to me at the time. But what did I know? I, you know, I was 10 years old in yeah. 1963. I understand. When did you um, when did you know you were a composer? The story of the 60s was Bob Dylan, Tom Paxton, Phil Oaks and all of the folk singers. Doug Mishkin has the song, we were all Woody's children, but really we're Woody's grandchildren, <laughs> you know. We're Pete's children, Pete Seeger's children. And the folk music movement, which was correctly called the revival, was really founded on singing traditional folk songs along the way. For a host of reasons, singers started writing their own music. It didn't start with Bob Dylan, but he was into it pretty early. And that was the world that I grew up in. I mean, I was kind of precocious, you know, at age 10, 11, 12, to be listening to Tom Paxton, Phil Oaks, and a little bit of Bob Dylan, but certainly a lot of Pete Seeger. Even Pete Seeger wrote his own songs. In other words, the way to express yourself in the 1960s was to put it in a song. So that was kind of inbred, the idea of writing songs. And I have written a lot of English songs and a lot of what you might call folk or singer-songwriter material. You haven't heard it because I, I do the Jewish thing. And that happened at camp. So late 60s, I'm at Joseph Eisner Camp Institute in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. For the very first summer of my life, I'm 14 years old. And that was it. That was just everything you would want musically, Jewishly, culturally, and boys and girls holding hands, Israeli dancing, you know, what could be better than that? So my writing songs was simply a natural, natural manifestation of that, because everyone wants to express what they're feeling or find a new way to say something. I mean, your, our, our mutual friend, <laughs> Cantor Basia Schechter says, before she sings her song, L'Chadudi, she said, we, we don't really need another L'Chadudi. 
but here's mine. You know, yeah. we don't, we don't. There's thousands and thousands, but but you want to give birth to your own Lachado D. It's fundamental for all of us to be musical. I remember when I went to Morocco, the children were the best musicians. Six, seven, eight years old, they'd come in and sing and play. And clap. With camp culture, Eisner at Barrington and Camp Harlem, where I went as a young child, where Debbie Friedman was a song leader, they were like sort of idyllic environments for expressing yourself, being creative, singing, harmonizing, creating a collective sound. And I mean, the song leader really had the experience and the body of work to help lead everyone in the context of the craft that Pete Seeger formed for all of us. And I'll tell you something about that, that I've actually never said to anybody because you understand this the culture, the musical culture that fed me. And then you, a few years later, was the world of Greenwich Village in the early 60s. In other words, it certainly was a worldwide movement, but that was the locus of the movement. And that was the incubation, if you will. In other words, all these people experimented and, and took from each other, you know, stole from each other in a way, but in a good way. They, they influenced it. And, hey, this one wrote a song about that. Well, I can write a better one. So I'm going to write a song about that topic and so on and so forth. Well, the camps were very similar. The, the camps, the Jewish camps of the reform movement, in the very late 60s and early 70s were incubators of this new style. And what we did was we took the spirit of those folk singers of Greenwich Village and we transplanted it to Kutz or Eisner or Harlem or Swig, wherever we happen to be. And I've always thought that between those two worlds, very different, of course, we were kid, teenage kids away in the country. The music we were playing was music of the 1960s. So it was very energizing. Jewish musicians, we take music from where we live. The Ugandan Jews, the Abba Udaya, they are singing Ugandan music, but it's with Hebrew. So for the 70s, you participated in creating some of the best work. You know, I think it's worth talking a little bit about the acoustic guitar. I remember being seven or eight years old when Debbie Friedman was my song leader at Camp Harlem. And then I went to Havana Shira where you and Debbie were teaching. You are, and she was excellent, excellent guitar players. And it has to come out of the excellent acoustic guitar playing that was going on in United States of America and the folk scene that was coming out of the 60s. The guitar is simply another instrument, like a violin, like a cello, like a drum, like a piano. But it happens to have certain qualities that make it perfect for accompanying participatory singing and small group singing or large group if you have microphones. So we didn't invent that. The guitar in its modern form has been around. It's not American, it's European. The iteration that came to us is Spanish. 
which is why when you see a, me a Mexican music band, they're all playing instruments. They all look like guitars, but they're all different sizes, you know, little eensy weensy ones and, you know, big bass. They're all guitars. Hey, it's a classical instrument. You know, you can play sonatas on a guitar. You know, so there's nothing special about the guitar. It just happens to have the qualities. And so that's nylon string guitar, sometimes called classical guitar. Before we, we, let's say Debbie Friedman and I and others, before we even got to camp in the 1950s, Shlomo Karlbach playing classical guitar. As a matter of fact, he studied flamenco. Theodore Bikel was playing classical and he also played with a flamenco style. Maybe they even had the same teacher. The problem is that a classical guitar cannot be heard in a room full of noisy people but a steel string guitar can. And a steel string guitar is portable. And a steel string guitar can be played after you've had three lessons <laughs> or maybe even two lessons. You know, you learn half a dozen chords and you can play a hundred songs. But you and you can play playing, them in any key. But you weren't playing a half a dozen chords in your compositions. No. For example, Yes. One of your biggest pieces that's popular is Shalom Rav. You got your basic chords, your basic triads. There's four chords, your basic D, your C, your G, your A, right? But you were doing things like this. You were taking what's essentially an F major seventh shape and you're moving it up the neck. Yes. It's a very 70s thing to do. I mean, notwithstanding Shalom Rob, the sound. Well, what the figure you're playing now, his influence is very strong in many, many ways, and certainly his songwriting. Paul Simon introduced an artistry in terms of his guitar playing, which I do think has influenced me. Right. And perhaps others as well. But when you're up in front of kids at camp banging out a song, you're not thinking of that kind of subtle subtlety no, on sure. the instrument. For you're sure. just you're just trying to make as much sound as you can. Now I'll I'll grant you, yes, there were when we were writing Shalom Rav, I rem I remember saying to Danny Freelander who's, of course, Rabbi Daniel Freelander, I said, when we hit on an A chord for it occurred to me, well, I don't have to play it like that, right? Because those are first position basic chords. Some people call them cowboy chords, you know? I said, oh, well, I can play it with a little bit of an open sound, a little bit of an airy sound. Da, da, da. Now, everything comes from somewhere, and I'm very happy to reveal my sources, but that comes from Joni Mitchell through Tom Rush. I woke up today and found frost perched on the town. You see? Yeah. And you could take Shalom Rav, and you could dissect that song, and you could find elements of Joni Mitchell, John Denver, James Taylor, a little bit of Country Road in there, a little bit of the Beatles. Beatles, you say? 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All good children go to heaven. Ba, 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 ba. You see. Yeah. Pete Seeger's hit with the Weavers. Santa, Santa, Santa. Written by Isakar Marone. Santa, Santa is a pre-state song. It, it was written before 1948. And it was written at a time when Israel, so I use the Israel in quotation marks, was the underdog. We were the, the kid, the little kid, getting our tush, you know, beaten up by the, the stronger uh, armies of, in that part of the world. So for the Weavers and for Pete Seeger, who always championed the underdog, to sing that song, by the way, the Weavers was half Jewish, Ronnie Gilbert and, and Fred Hellerman, and they're all departed uh, from this earth uh, right now. But they didn't see it, I think, really much as a Jewish song. To the Weavers, it symbolized those scruffy, young chalutznikim plowing the land and, 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 and working in the swamps with the malaria and, you know, building the this young new land even before it became a country. So it represented to them the optimism and the idealism of this young generation, especially after the Holocaust. And as you and I both know, Pete Seeger sang in Yiddish and he, he sang songs that came from, from that dark time in Jewish history. There, there was not really a time when songs like Tzena Tzena really had anything to do with Jewish religion or synagogue, except in one very important way. Israeli music did influence the music that we were singing, especially after the Hasidic song festival. So walk up to a little kid who goes to religious school and you say to the, to the child, how do you sing Ose Shalom? And they'll go, Ose Shalom Bim Ramav. Well, that song only came about in 1968. Before then, yes, there were a couple of other tunes, but since then, hundreds and hundreds of tunes of Ose Shalom. Really, almost exactly that song at that time began to influence what we were doing at camp. We were singing Israeli songs, but they were songs, as I said before, that you would dance to. You know, the songs of Naomi Shemer and which Pete Seeger used to sing as well. It was really just because of the Hasidic music festival where you had prayers like Shema Yisrael and Yedid Nefesh. And we all know those tunes, Al Shloshah Devarim and Adon Olam. That was an aha moment for us. Okay, now there's a connection between what we want to do in camp and synagogue and what they're doing in Israel. It still had to be fleshed out. It wasn't quite so easy as that, but it was part, it was a piece of it. And it was certainly, interestingly, since you mentioned it, that was really about the time when we, meaning we, the people in the camps, started writing American Jewish liturgical tunes. And that was started by Michael Isaacson, who's very well known to cantors and choir singers because he's not a performer himself. He's just a composer and a conductor. 
but but he really was the one who started to write contemporary Jewish liturgical music in 1967. And Debbie and I both knew him. He's quite a few years ahead of us in age. Debbie and I were song leaders at camp and 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 we simply continued the thread. You know, we okay. Well, we can do that. That that's what any songwriter says. Well, if he can do it, I can do it. If she can do it, I can do it. Maybe exactly. better, maybe not, but certainly in a different way, in a different voice. Can you um, continue this thread in the context of Hava Nagila and that a melody written by who knows, at least the first two parts, pre-Israel boy and the professor has the assignment in music class, kids write the lyrics and Moshe Nathanson goes home and he wrote the words and then came up with a third part and then the song ended up with harry belafonte and etc you know in the context of sort of santa santa that you just spoke about so well and sort of hava nagila i mean it's interesting you mention it because hava nagila you could kind of pair that along with santa santa as being that first little burst of jewish musical folk culture in the 1960s but havana gila has an interesting history you mentioned the story we don't know if it's true it was written by a hasidic rabbi in the ukraine thinks the sadagur hasidim you know and it was found in a book it was recorded by edelson the great musicologist in the 1920s right edelson who recorded it and published it in a book of hundreds and hundreds of other tunes he opened up the book he gave the tune to his class as you said and and nathanson is uh, said to have composed the words to it think Havanagila is representative either of hasidic music or of israeli music i mean it is what it is it's a great little tune and i love it global popularity it's just at the top. well yeah and and I recommend the movie, by the way, Havana Gila, the movie. It's an extraordinary movie. It's like an ethnomusicology class. Ba, 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 ba. Yeah, that's And I use it in my classes as an example. It has a Turkish or Middle Eastern quality to it. But I don't know. I think the point you're making, if you're making a point here, is the exact opposite of what you're saying, but in a positive way. Every tune that's associated with a place carries, you know, the DNA of its background. So Havana Gila, you have the Hasidic element of it and you have an Israeli element because people who hear the tune, people in the 60s, they thought it was an Israeli folk song. They thought it was a horror tune. Bum, bum, ba -da -ba -dum, bum, ba -da -ba -dum. Everybody dancing in a circle. Well, that's kind of what it was eventually. My way of thinking is the tunes that really mean something have to be tunes that are of the culture in which we live. Now, I know you could pick that apart. The reason that Debbie Friedman started writing her original songs was, and, and the same goes for me, the old tunes that we were hearing sung by cantors who were of our parents' age, who were, you know, 20, 30 years older than us, 
were not meaningful to us. Yeah. We were listening to Simon and Garfunkel and, and the Beatles. And I, and I know that for some people that's not convincing and people will say, well, the Jewish people have been singing sacred tunes for hundreds of years, you know, think of Kol Nidre. Can't you sing the same old songs? Why are you changing, right? What cantor hasn't heard that? Why are you changing the tunes? that I grew up with. But I have to tell you something, Matt. I've heard every myth of Jewish music. People used to say to me, when I was a kid, you know, all the shuls sang the same way, the same tunes. And you could go across the street and hear the same tunes. And you could go down the block and hear the same tunes. It's just not, it's not accurate. It's not true. There's always been variations. And frankly, it's always up to the the cantor or the music director of a individual synagogue. What? And of course, at one time in the 1920s and 30s, yes, there was a corpus. Shalom Rav was not among them, but that would change. That would change. And that's why I had such a hard time. We haven't even gotten to that. That's why there was so much pushback in the 1970s to what Debbie and I were doing. We were being accused of, of torpedoing all the great traditional music let's talk about that right now i just uh, hurricane ida is like here outside i want to just close my window so it you and me and rain on the roof thank you for listening to this edition of call jeshurun if you would like to learn more visit our website at tbj.org and follow us on social media for updates on all our upcoming opportunities for engagement we really hope to see you soon